Alrighty, hello there, friends, allies, enemies, uh, anyone really who might want to join this somewhat, I'll admit, inconveniently timed uh, call-in episode. But you know what? You work with what you have, uh, particularly when you, as I am, are in a time zone several hours ahead of the ordinary time zone that I would be doing this in. So I'm uh, currently in London. You might be aware I spent some time uh, in Poland and then Belgium, but now I'm uh, in England, and so five hours ahead. And I've already done some, believe it or not, uh, Ukraine-related, I guess you'd call it reporting here, having gone to a very curious uh, pro-war demonstration on Saturday that was led by a group of left-wing activists. Um, so that was interesting, and I'll get maybe get into that. Later, I'm actually writing a piece on that now, but for the time being, I wanted to focus on the conservative slash Republican side of the ideological spectrum insofar as the way in which this faction is contributing to the consecration of unwavering consensus around the issue of U.S. intervention in Ukraine. And uh, when I say U.S. intervention, I'm referring to the intervention as it currently exists now because it is a form of military intervention. I tried to report on this in some detail when I was in Poland, which is the hub of this intervention. But, you know, proxy warfare requires a large and escalating uh, military intervention in its own right. So even if there is not direct hostilities between the U.S. or NATO and Russia, the policy as it currently exists, I think it's fair to say constitutes a military intervention. It's own right. So I'm going to, for shorthand purposes, refer to it as a military intervention. But I know people will quibble with the semantics and let them do so if they so wish. But um, you know, because I'm often accused of, or I guess that's not the reason why I chose to focus on this topic, but one, thing is, one of the things I'm often accused of being is some kind of secret Republican or some apologist for the Republican Party or Trump or whomever. And, you know, this has never been what I ever conceived myself as being. Uh, I just, over the past maybe five years, definitely since 2016, have been most interested in, at least much of the time, on kind of the this hegemonic monocultural liberalism that seems to be taking shape in the U.S., at least within the media, within some political institutions, um, within definitely academia and Hollywood and so on and so forth. Uh, So, yeah, and the tech companies for sure. So that has often tended to draw a lot of interest from me in terms of my analyzing political affairs or current events. Um, And so because of that, I guess you might say slant or drift in my coverage or commentary, people who don't like me will often charge that I'm a stealth Republican or I love Trump or whatever. I mean, this has been a recurring theme for a number of years now. And uh, so I thought it was worth, uh, not as a way to rebut that necessarily, but just kind of as a phenomenon to examine it unto itself, I thought it was worth looking at just like what the Republican Party stands is now, vis-a-vis Ukraine. And when I say the Republican Party, I'm kind of broadly referring to prominent Republican elected officials, I'm referring to conservative media, or as I often call it, the conservative infotainment complex, Uh, I'm referring to... You know, these sort of institutional apparatuses of Republican thinking like the Heritage Foundation and comparable entities. Um, And also, to some extent, the preferences as expressed by polling of Republican voters. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the Republican Party. And part of, I guess, what prompted me to, to write this is that Actually, here on Colin, I remember having an exchange maybe a week and a half ago with somebody who said uh, something to the effect of, you know, the, Rep- the rank-and-file Republicans or the, you know, the, the majority of the party actually isn't down with this whole 
intervention. They're actually more and more skeptical of American military adventurism. Um, and it's just this group of um, meddlesome neocons who are causing all this trouble and making it seem like the Republicans, Republican Party is actually in favor of escalation when, they, when it's not. Well, the problem with that excuse, and um, I can understand it as a form of or a method of self-rationalization if you are a Republican and you want to believe that this that your uh, inclination toward anti-interventionism is well reflected within the kind of spectrum of the party it makes sense for you to come up with that self-justifying excuse the problem is when you look into this in any detail it's just not it doesn't hold water right um so you know the this notion that it's only the hardcore neocons who are really dead set on intervention or a no-fly zone or you know, um, basically escalating U.S. military involvement in Ukraine. You know, the 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 person who who will be quintessentially scapegoated in that rationalization is Lindsey Graham, right? Because Lindsey Graham, seen as a kind of a wacko, even amongst a lot of Republicans, because he's so far out there on foreign policy issues, it has been for a very long time, and um, and so they'll. Try to just make it seem like as as if he's this a- aberrational figure within the party coalition, right? And I think it's actually worth looking at what Lindsey Graham is currently advocating and ascertaining whether it's a broadly shared view within the party. Because if there's another quintessential figure uh, from whom these kind of nascent anti-interventionists within the Republican Party would want to move on from – and want to show is now irrelevant or has been discarded, it would be John McCain, right? Um, you know, McCain clear, uh, feuded with Trump um, and was lavish with the most effusive display of kind of uh, post posthumous, uh, officially sanctioned bereavement uh, that any figure had received in the U.S. since Reagan uh, in 2004 when, when McCain died in 2018. And uh, McCain's worldview was most animated, I would say, probably by his um, ardent pro-interventionist dogma. Um, it was there was hardly a country that McCain ever saw that he didn't want to bomb. <laughs> and actually, I wrote about this in a Substack article from a couple days ago, so look that up if you're interested. But back when it used to be more in vogue to characterize anti-interventionism as a progressive virtue, uh, outlets like Mother Jones would mock McCain simply by tallying up the number of countries that he had at various points expressed a desire to bomb. (laughs) And that was seen as like the joke. Uh, Whereas now, I don't think they would get away with it um, because there's this whole sort of left liberal logic now intertwined with U.S. uh, intervention that didn't, didn't really exist, at least in its current form um, as recently as a couple, I don't know, five or six years ago. Um, So, you know, Graham, Lindsey Graham was the closest confidant and associate, both personally and ideologically, with McCain. um, And it remains in office. And, uh, you know, these kind of self-rationalizing conservative commentators will claim something to the effect of, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but I think it's a, rough approximation of the type of thing that they would say to say oh you know old Lindsay, you know he's just one of these like crazy neocon uncles who we keep sort of stowed away in um the closet somewhere uh while the rest of us you know more sensible conservatives we uh we're we're more we're far more open to uh, anti-interventionist arguments and um he doesn't speak on behalf of the wider Republican Party. That's kind of more or less what you'd, you'd hear from these kind of conservative commentators and rank-and-file Republicans about Graham, right? Well, I mean, first of all, there are a couple of problems with that. In 2020, which is, this is kind of amazing, Lindsey Graham received the most contributions ever financially for any Republican ever running for the Senate in South Carolina. Right, so not not one of the bigger states in the union. 
Uh, but but Lindsey Graham received the most money for any Republican Senate candidate ever in 2020. And that was in part because Graham had sort of situated himself as this stalwart defender of Trump, right? So notwithstanding him being the emblem of this McCain philosophy on foreign policy, Graham had managed to uh, position himself as a conduit between like the McCain brand and the Trump brand and um, also to go up beyond the attack against Democrats and liberals, right? Um, and that was enough to <laughs> generate a giant avalanche of uh, donations in 2020 to the point that it shattered records, records for any Republican Senate candidate. Um, uh, but also on, on top of that, um, you know... <laughs> This whole idea that that Trump and or the MAGA movement and Graham and the neocon movement, you know, to oversimplify, to, to this idea that they're at loggerheads or that they're in this kind of cosmic conflict is just not really accurate. In, in part because who is one of the top advocates right now for another Trump presidential run? I mean, it's Lindsey Graham. He was on Fox just a couple months ago, and he's said similar things since. Basically, <laughs> informing fellow Republicans of his that Trump is going to run again and that everybody needs to just get on board. And this idea that Lindsey Graham, who also is very much animated by his convictions on foreign policy, just as McCain was. I mean, this is why they were so closely tied together. This idea that Graham would kind of take on this role as a Trump basically spokesman or a Trump uh, mediator within with other aspects of the Republican coalition. Uh, the idea that Graham would do this if it, Trump's foreign policy views were antithetical to his own doesn't really hold up. Um, so in other words, clearly Graham reasons that Trump is enough of a reliable steward of his foreign policy vision that he's willing to be a, this kind of trusted confidant and champion of, of Trump, not just during his presidency, but now in the post-presidency, looking forward to another presidential, uh, presidential run. Um, so that's, that's Graham. I mean, Graham is not some sort of outlier within the party coalition. And, you know, although on occasion he'll say something genu like a little bit more insane than usual, such as when he tweeted last month infamously a call for Putin to be assassinated, um, the, the underlying policy that Graham is advocating is really not that outside of the mainstream Republican kind of uh, currents at all. Um, and one example that I give of this in, in the article that I think is pretty demonstrative is uh, Rick Scott, who's this, he's a Republican senator from Florida, right? Um, and why do I point out what Rick Scott has been up to and lately and what he's been advocating and, and saying? Well, it's because... Rick Scott is kind of just a conventional Republican. I mean, there's nothing that's really notable about him ideologically other than he's a conventional Republican. I mean, he wasn't like Graham where he is kind of marinated in the, this foreign policy philosophy for decades, right? I mean, Rick Scott was just a business guy in Florida who made a bunch of money basically scamming Medicare, somehow parlayed that into becoming governor of Florida in 2010, and now is in the Senate. And uh, Rick Scott is also seemingly pursuing higher ambitions within electoral politics. There's been talk of him potentially challenging Mitch McConnell to be Senate uh, leader for the Republicans. Trump himself actually encouraged Scott to do this because of Trump's various feuding with McConnell. Um, and it's even been teased that Rick Scott could himself launch a presidential bid at some point. Um, so – in that capacity, uh, uh, Scott, Rick Scott, is basically running the Senate Republicans' midterm strategy for 2022. Um, he's the chair of this uh, you know, Senate Rep uh, Republican committee uh, that basically is the hub of its campaign strategy. And uh, so Rick Scott has a number of incentives that he's working under. Clearly, he wants to bolster his ability to um, ascend through the ranks of the party for higher office or some, some more elevated position. 
Uh, and also, he wants to uh, kind of calculate what the Republican Party, in his estimation, stands to benefit most from in the upcoming midterm. So he's in a very politically sensitive role. And what is Rick Scott calling for with respect to Ukraine? Well, he put out a statement last month where he basically gave Biden an ultimatum where he said either do the send them send Ukraine the jets that they need immediately or do a no-fly zone. So that's Rick Scott more or less advocating the imposition of a no-fly zone in Ukraine and doing so because presumably Rick Scott has um, reasoned that this demand is kind of squarely at the median of the Republican Party as it exists today. Um, it's the most flattering position that can be taken amongst donors, amongst voters, amongst conservative media, etc. Because Rick Scott is not trying to really rock the boat ideologically. He wants to get you know, right at the sweet spot of where the um, kind of paradigmatic Republican is today, and this is what he's advocating for. So this is clearly what he thinks is the most appealing position that somebody who is an ambitious Republican can take at the moment. And it's not clear that he's wrong, <laughs> frankly. Um, I've posted about this polling data that keeps coming out, which shows that Republicans are now just as likely or not, if not more likely, actually in some polls it shows that they're more likely – to state than, than Democrats that they view Russia as a, quote, enemy right now. Um, Republicans have been most ardent in a lot of polls in demanding further military intervention, even more so than Democrats. Um, and why? what explains this? Well, one of the reasons I think probably is just this knee-jerk knee partisan reflex where by declaring that they're in favor of additional military intervention – what they're in essence declaring is that they believe Biden is too weak or they believe Biden is too much of an appeaser or that you know liberals or leftists are not strong enough on Putin or defending America or whatever. Um, and you, you even see this reflected in like somebody like Sean Hannity. I mean Sean Hannity is only notable insofar as he is sort of the caricature representation of what just the – standard partisan Republican position is on any given issue. And uh, Hannity is, you know, first of all, he, when the invasion first started in, in February, a couple, like a week later, he was uh, demanding that uh, NATO actually just start bombing. I mean, he was actually, he was saying they should go all the way just a couple of days after the invasion. And uh, last week, I don't know if you saw this, but he had uh, Sean Penn on, of all people, and it was a, in a beautiful moment of solidarity. Uh, Sean Penn and Sean Hannity were, were both united in expressing their agreement that um, Biden ought to be sending in these fighter jets. Um, so every step of the way, um, whether it's you know, a Rick Scott or a Sean Hannity or even people in Congress like uh, Kevin McCarthy, the uh, – Republican leader in the House, Elise Stefanik, who was supposedly this big MAGA person when Trump was in office and now is in a leadership position in the House in the Republican caucus, uh, Steve Scalise, uh, Mitch McConnell. I mean, the list goes on. Pretty much every major Republican figure you can think of right now, uh, with, with very few marginal exceptions. And by the way, these exceptions get dwelled on ad nauseum by the media because they want to make it seem as though the Republican Party is somehow you know, nefariously pro-Putin or whatever when it's not. I mean, <laughs> if you're anti-intervention, you should wish that these media attacks were actually more accurate than they are. Um, but the media attacks really are just a matter – it's a way to get political ammunition against Republicans and it's not at all in accordance with reality. Um, but basically, every step of the way, what the Republicans have done is to condemn Biden, not for anything to do with like the premises underlying the intervention, but to condemn him for not being st strong enough, right, or not being essentially aggressive enough, whether it's the no-fly zone, whether it's the weapons shipments, whether it's the economic warfare by way of sanctions – whether it's just the sheer rhetoric 
I mean, uh, Steve Scalise, who's the House Majority Whip, um, on March 16th, he was out there saying that uh, Putin is committing genocide. And, you know, now that's sort of a standard bromide. Um, but that was really – that was it was Republicans who were on the cutting edge of leveling that accusation and with all the kind of implications that carries as to what the proper U.S. military slash NATO role should be. Um, so, you know, you see this on and on and on. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a segment of the conservative slash Republican kind of commentariat. And, you know, I see this in a lot of people who follow me on social media who are maybe more right-leaning who want to think that the, the Republicans are not as interventionist as they plainly are um, because they themselves have <laughs> – criticisms of current U.S. interventionist policy, uh, and they want to they just rest assured that they have a natural home in the Republican Party because they also have problems with the Democrats in a wide variety of other areas, whether it be kind of culture war stuff or even economic stuff. But, the, but what this uh, Ukraine situation has really revealed, and actually it's useful because you don't want to live under illusions, right? What the Ukraine situation has revealed, at least from my vantage point, and uh, I have many other examples in this Substack article from a couple days ago that I would encourage you to read if you're interested. Um, but to my mind, what the Ukraine situation revealed is that really it's still John McCain's Republican Party. The Republican Party goes through these kind of superficial rebranding exercises every so often to make it seem like they're shedding the discredited ways of, of uh, their discredited ways of the past and are now um, adopting this kind of vibrant new, whether it's populism or the early 2010s, it was the Tea Party, or you know, today it's sort of this you know, NatCon, national conservatism. Um, there's always got to be like a sexy new trend that Republicans, or like the, the conservative movement or the Republican Party establishment is glomming onto to, to kind of make themselves seem fresh thinking. Um, when really, I mean, when push comes to shove, it's kind of just the same old tired interventionism as always and uh this is reflected by pretty much every component of the republican coalition today with the exception of maybe people on social media who um i guess are a a reasonably important constituency in some senses but they don't really uh reflect the broad thrust of the republican coalition um and, you know, I, I would also just underscore that this includes Trump himself. I mean, this this idea that like a Trump and a McCain were locked in an existential battle because they had a personality clash and because Trump mocked famously, infamously or famously uh, McCain for being captured in Vietnam or whatever. I mean, McCain basically got his way with Trump vis-a-vis Ukraine policy throughout 2017 – McCain and uh, Graham jointly lobbied Trump to start doing uh, shipments of lethal weaponry to Ukraine. Um, And Trump acceded to this. And this is one of the big causes, if you listen to what Putin has said, of the Russian decision to launch the invasion in the first place. That basically the U.S. and NATO were militarizing Ukraine, even if it hadn't yet ascended to full NATO membership. Um, And it's Trump who, you know, abrogated the INF Treaty, another one of the the grievances that Putin has cited, uh, against the U.S. Um, So uh, there's really not a whole lot of difference that's observable on a policy level in terms of what Trump did with respect to Ukraine and uh, what uh, President McCain could theoretically have done in the same situation. Maybe there are some stylistic differences, sure. Um, But on a policy level, no. I mean, it's just the same old Republican Party. Um, And, uh, you know, again, the media likes to somehow try to tarnish Trump as this secret Putin fan or something, but he was right out the gate when the invasion happened of, you know, condemning Putin and calling it a horrible travesty and touting how his uh, weapons he chose to send made him tough and made Obama weak because Obama wouldn't send the lethal weaponry. And uh, Trump actually, in his in a speech that he did at CPAC, seemed to insinuate that the right that the U.S. if it was really wanted to get if he really wanted to get tough, what the U.S. would do is threaten some sort of nuclear retaliation against Putin. 
Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I guess my, my basic conclusion is that it's, uh, it's still John McCain's world and we're all uh, living in it and you're definitely living in it if you're a Republican. Um, because as much as this whole sort of personality dis- the conflict between Trump and uh, McCain was uh, an object of chatter for the past number of years and, um, you know, kind of culminated in <laughs> Trump not, you know, being specifically disinvited from McCain's funeral – um, the, these kind of different tendencies within the, within the Republican Party have a tendency of converging. And I think, you know, especially if you look at Lindsey Graham's role at this point, um, that convergence is, is well solidified. Uh, in particular by, you know, there's this video that came out, and I'll stop ranting in a moment, but there's, just to end with, there was this video that resurfaced recently that I linked to in my Substack of uh, Graham, McCain, and, of course, Amy Klobuchar, I mean, please, on a trip to Ukraine in uh, December of 2016. And it's actually, it's amazing footage. And it's (laughs) incredible that more Americans aren't aware that their elected representatives are doing this on their behalf with their tax money. Um, But they did this official trip to Ukraine in December 2016 and addressed a unit of Ukrainian soldiers, you know, on the, basically who would be on the front lines in the Donbass, and uh, declared, McCain and Graham did, that uh, 2017, the following year at that time, would be the year of offense. That, you know, no more Russian aggression would be tolerated. Graham said, your fight is our fight. Um, and, and, and McCain added, you know, we will do whatever you need to be done to ensure that you are victorious. And, uh, you know, at the time, there was some dissension over the wisdom of that policy position. Um, a lot of Democrats had reservations about it, including Obama himself, including Biden, um, and uh, including at least some Republicans. But now, today, what Graham and McCain boldly declared is the absolute pinnacle of conventional wisdom in both parties. So their whole foreign policy portfolio, I would... I would suggest, is uh, more mainstream now than it really has ever been. Um, so far from being cast aside as an irrelevancy, um, the McCain style of foreign policy belligerence is, is, has been crystallized as, the, as mainstream orthodoxy. So there you have it. Um, all right. Thank you for uh, listening to this, people. I know it's a bit of an odd hour for a call-in room. Uh, but now we'll go to a couple of uh, callers. So, Andrew, you're up. Any thoughts? Welcome. Hi there. Are you able to hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Great. So, yeah, um, I'll just preface this by saying I'd be okay with my taxpayer money going to uh, drop Klobuchar in Izium in the middle of the Donbass armed with nothing but a comb. That would be good. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that, that's, that's really lethal weaponry. Yeah, maybe give her a binder if you're serious. She can chuck it at a Russian. Anyway, yeah, of course, they'll never go anywhere like that when, you know, it's actually dangerous. But the, uh, the thing she I can hurl, she can hurl you, bowls of salad at any <laughs> remaining uh, Russian convoy members. A whole new class of uh, war crime. So, but um, yeah, I was, I was wondering if you had heard that the Boston Marathon has apparently banned Russians and Belarusians? Uh, I have heard that. I haven't independently verified that. Um, I don't know. Is, is, is that confirmed well, as far as you're aware? You know I should what? look into I that more, think actually. it matters for my point because the way I heard of it was through a Facebook group called Being Liberal, gleefully sharing it, you know, like an excited toddler. And – most of the comments, and it was you know heavily liked. It was supported. Just, so I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying about the Republican Party today, but it's also very striking to me how rabid and hysterical the bulk of the population has become. I mean, there was a little bit of pushback. There were a couple people saying, you know, this is wrong. You don't punish the people of a nation for what the government does. Um, but it was mostly massively supported, and uh, and you know I just I just googled it, and you know here NPR actually today has has a story headlined "Runners from Russia and Belarus 
are banned from this year's Boston Marathon. So sure enough, it's, oh. it appears to be the case. Read the article. I mean, they'll um, tell us why yeah. it's good, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. But uh, – um, yeah, I, I, sorry to interrupt, but but Go yeah, ahead, I, mean, I, I I agree with you. I think a lot of a, a key ingredient of this consensus, this pro-war consensus, is the way I would characterize it, is this is liberal fervency, um, and I've discussed that in detail in the past, where uh, it's now seen as a paramount progressive slash democratic virtue to be as utterly committed to the the success of Ukraine uh, militarily as, as one could possibly be. And I think there are a lot of precursors for that newfound fervency having to do with you know, the, the role of Russiagate in the U.S., having to do with Putin being depicted as this global exporter of right-wing insurrectionism or something uh, and so on and so forth. But I think you know the reason – What's necessary to create a consensus or to create a pro-war sort of orthodoxy that's so intractable as the one now on display today is when you have a convergence of different ideological tendencies that undergird it, right? And um, so the Republican tendency is is an important one. Um, the militaristic knee-jerk reaction is always there. Right, which which, which makes it such that – which makes it such that the only real point of disagreement – in terms of U.S. domestic political debate right now, right now, has nothing to do with anything about the uh, assumptions that gave rise to this intervention. It's to do with how intensely the intervention should be conducted. Right? So the, the Republicans, the yeah, press. Republicans' only criticism is that Biden isn't doing enough. And actually, it's similar right. in the U.K. Um, I'm going to talk about this in a, maybe in a different subsect, in a different mm-hmm. column, but. Um, the Labor Party's only real criticism of Boris Johnson at the at the moment is that he's not doing enough to militarily aid Ukraine and basically c- contribute to th- their own military intervention. Um, so it's sort of interesting how you know it's both the the Republican Party's in quote opposition in the U.S. and the Labor Party in quote opposition in the U.K. are f- playing the same role more or less. Um, and that, I think that that's that's a function of con- of this this untouchable consensus right um yeah. but but yeah i mean obviously i agree with your that your point that you know liberals are probably going to be most inclined to make the most ridiculous comments in favor of something as you know scurrilous as bannings for some reason it, it russia and Mexico. russian and belarusian uh, runners it, in the boston marathon it evokes uh, images of japanese internment camps in my mind it really does i know i mean russia hasn't even attacked us imagine if that happened Imagine the the fervor and how it would hit these peaks. Um, but <laughs> the the thing I was going to say is that it, it, the way the opposition to Russia is expressed seems to be mostly militarily from the Republican side because one they aren't in power, so they conveniently, uh, as I've crudely come up with the term, they've basically found themselves in the position of being able to brag about their dick size, knowing they're never going to have to whip it out. So they just sit on the sidelines. Right calling for whatever and the liberals very elegant way of putting it by the way oh thank you yeah yeah (laughs) it's what i'm known for and uh the the liberals have like a cultural expression of this right where they want to ban everything that's like their knee-jerk ban the art ban the the runners uh anyone speaking russian you know fire them from their jobs that's their style yeah Um, they want to do what they can with their human resources approach to life yeah so then this leads me to the observation that the only opposition is on the fringes and of both parties. And I mean, there's barely any on the left. You're, I, I consider you marginally left, especially compared to the people opposing it on the right, which uh, other than you and Aaron Mate and a couple people, the overall uh, libertarian response has been much better. It's been much stronger. It's been much more vocal. It's been much more... Um, I mean, Norman Finkelstein might have topped them. He basically said Russia had the right to do it. But other than Norman Finkelstein, (laughs) I'm pretty sure the libertarians have been the staunchest on this. But my point just being that the only way forward is an anti-partisan alliance, some kind of network of media and figures that are focused on uh, an intractable principle of being anti-war. And there's only a couple of people in Congress on either side that have even come close to this. So I I just – Yeah, I I just just think the – 
the can of worms has been opened at this point. You know, I'm, I'm willing to entertain any proposals people might have about some alliance or grouping of different media figures or whatever. But, you know, I just think that it's almost, you know, it's like, uh, you know, there's a raging inferno in the, in the forest and you have like a little bucket of water and you're trying to, you know, uh, to tamp down the fire with that's, 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 that's spiraling so far out of control that it's almost not even worth trying at this point. Uh, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I just think you know when yeah, you know the, have to be the proxy war. I mean, the, the, I thought the whole lesson of Vietnam, the Vietnam War, which maybe people haven't studied at this point, but, but I definitely did when I was younger, um, is that you know it started with this. It, it started uh, seemingly small war and gradually escalated over time, and we started out, or the U.S. did anyway, in uh, this current war with much more fulsome commitment than it had was the case in Vietnam originally. Um, so, you know, the escalatory potential was, was greater. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's basically a new threshold that's, that was crossed over this past week with claims of genocide and such. And, um, right. and, and the, the so UK, I mean, I'm in the UK, so I'm following the media here a little more closely than I, than I would, um, in other circumstances, I'll do it. Although I do tend to follow it somewhat closely regardless, but you know, basically there's, there are plans being floated for the UK to base, uh, essentially, lure the u.s into intervention um so basically they want the u.s and you saw this with boris johnson going to kiev uh this weekend for a you know i don't know some kind of visit and um you know the, the top uh defense um official for the uh, in parliament for the conservative party this guy tobias uh, elwood is calling for nato to launch a naval intervention in uh, odessa um, to prevent Russia from seizing the city. And um, it seems like this is a proposition that's being entertained pretty seriously. So, um, yeah, it's just uh, – it continues to – the, 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 the clamor continues to grow. Um, I just – Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank, thanks, thank Andrew. Thanks for your time. Yep. All righty. Uh, Stephen, you are up. Hey, Mike. Um, hey. So first, I had to call you out, you know, referring to Poles in Poland. So nice pun. <laughs> oh, right. is the culturally sensitive thing to do is refer to them as surveys in reference to Poland. Uh, totally I'm gonna, joking. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to write that down. I'm going <laughs> to pen that on my hand for the next call and just so I know not to transgress that cultural uh, taboo. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm kind of disinterested in the what I see as kind of the child steering wheel of electoral politics. I don't really see a risk of, you know, self-identified conservatives or liberals driving the war machine into a ditch. Uh, so I don't feel that they really, you know, feel the weight of the positions that they take, uh, a la Ukraine, Russia, what have you. Um, what does kind of interest me, though, is the difference between the quiet wars that we traditionally have and the ones that require a full-on media blitz. So obviously, you know, the U.S. Is, has a number of military inventions that we're involved with uh, at any given point in time. And so I'm just kind of curious your sense of, like, why, why Ukraine? Why are we pushing for a populist uh, level of support in this um, for Ukraine and not, you know, any number of the other military inventions the U.S. is involved in. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, and you know, I think you know uh, it should be granted that the nature of the Russian invasion makes this conflict somewhat unique in the sense of there hasn't been this large scale of a land war in Europe since World War II. So, I mean, you can't really begrudge people for having a particular interest in this conflict. That said, clearly there has been a long-standing effort successfully on the part of Ukrainian interests to lobby um, US, the U.S. to pay a, a, an extra intensive interest in Ukraine. And, you know, we had a whole impeachment saga that stemmed from the, the actions of Trump vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Um, I think it became, in the U.S. anyway, a kind of a 
a front for different partners and actors to wage war against one another in a political sense. Um, I think, you know, that in part definitely explains a lot of the liberal fervor you see in, in favor of the war effort where, you know, it's somehow this implicit campaign for vengeance against Trump because, you know, Putin was his buddy. And then if we can really stick it to Putin and then we're taking Trump down a peg, I think that's a component of it. Um, but also it's a, it was a very uh, intense and intensive lobbying campaign that was literally waged by Ukrainian interests in the U.S. I mean, there were disclosures put out earlier this year that The Intercept reported on, which showed that uh, in terms of FARA filings, so uh, this law that requires foreign uh, lobbyists uh, working on behalf of foreign governments to register, the uh, amount of lobbying done by Ukrainian interests exceeded in 2021, even the lobbying that was done by Saudi interests, um, so I think that's a, it's a big reason why you see a lot of uh, the social media frenzy is that you know they're just it, you, Ukrainian actors are very well integrated into the American media and political ecosystem, um, and uh, you know, and I think you know, couple that with the novelty, let's say, of a land war in Europe and how you know, NATO is directly implicated, so the U.S. has a, has an active kind of military role and there's it kind of um resurrects kind of grandiose notions of a you know global war with with russia um and the nuclear aspect i mean i think there's a lot of ingredients here that kind of lead make this sort of a bit more unique than your standard fair american intervention i think people have gotten maybe um bored i don't i it's a crash way of putting it but you know you're not going to get the same level of interest, I don't think, at all with a U.S. military intervention in Yemen or Syria just because the, the, the novelty factor of the U.S. of U.S. being involved in the Middle East is worn off now after 20-plus years. Um, and this is you know, in a new theater. Um, the um, people who are victimized are, you know, look different. Uh, again, put it in a crass way, but I think it's pretty apt. Um, and, uh, you know, I think those are maybe summaries. I don't know if, if you maybe have other other uh, theories. No, I, I think the part that you struck on there that, that I, I find um, applicable here is that, um, you know, that, that we funded PR campaigns uh, in Ukraine as opposed to just giving them arms. And, and that's a, a, an interesting thing. And again, I'm kind of curious, like, why, you know, why um, it is that we're propping up, you know, actual propaganda campaigns a la Ukraine as opposed to some of the other stuff we've done in other interventions. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the one of the points that I've harping, been harping on is that the media or the U.S. media basically just functions as a propaganda wing of the Ukrainian government right now, and they are proud about it. I mean, they think that that's their, their legitimate purpose. There are Ukrainian members of parliament and different uh, other government officials who will just make some kind of outlandish claim that's not been corroborated in the slightest, and they can be guaranteed that a whole variety of U.S. and other quote-unquote Western media outlets will just uncritically pro- amplify and propagate these claims as though it's this news item that's been independently verified, which it almost never is. Right. Um, and the other yeah. facet that I also find curious is that, you know, this almost obsoletes manufactured consent. Uh, what this really implies, you know, is if you can um, decrease the number of people who actually need to support a war, uh, you know, with um, shadow banning and, and the various things that they're doing to kind of uh, demonetize and marginalize alternative media right now. Um, you don't need that anymore. Uh, you just need, you know, a much a substantially smaller group of people who, you know, are very vocal. Um, yeah, so it kind of changes the game up in my mind. But yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, all right. Well, thanks, Stephen. Going to go to uh, Rena. Rena, you're up. Good morning, Michael. Hey, how are you? Uh, really interesting. I'm very well, thank you. Uh, really interesting questions from Stephen. Kudos to him. Um, I just, I just wanted to say that I'm, I'm, I'm still kind of flabbergasted by how fast everybody whapped a Ukrainian flag under their Twitter handle, and including, um, you know, I've, I've, I started following a whole bunch of people I wouldn't normally follow because of COVID. 
like a lot of doctors and stuff that were recommended to to follow by a friend who's more fluent on the whole subject than I could ever hope to be. And, um, you know, just shows to go you that uh, Hollywood celebrities and people who are uh, very informed on one topic aren't necessarily very well informed on other topic, topics because a lot of these doctors have sprouted Ukrainian flags also. I've resisted the impulse to uh, to uh, unfollow them so far. Uh, however, I did feel compelled to change my Twitter handle for one of the very few times in my life. And uh, basically what I did was I put I put the Russian name that I used uh, when I was studying Russian in college and, you know, did the whole thing, found the, found the Russian keyboard and the whole nine yards because the, the, the Russophobia is just beyond belief. I mean, I, I could see people having a Ukrainian and a Russian flag and, or, or I don't know, European Union flag, whatever, because those are the people who are going to be paying the price, the biggest price for a lot of this stuff. But this this obsession with Ukraine is really, it, it's just over the top. And I, I don't speak Ukrainian. I never learned Ukrainian. I have read that uh, my Russian my Russian language professor when I was in college was Ukrainian and very nationalistic. But um, But I've read that the, the two languages share like 60% of their words. And when I'm listening to somebody uh, from Ukraine, uh, like that, their foreign minister, that, that woman, when I listen to her speaking, I recognize a lot of the words. So uh, it's, it's just amazing to me that, that people, that people have just leapt to this Ukrainians good. And again, nothing against the people there and Russians, people included not just putin are horrible and terrible what they're doing to athletes and yeah well on the on the the on the point of on the point of people you started following during covid now seamlessly in transitioning to ukraine advocacy yeah i mean it's hard not to notice that and you know the title of this whole colin show of mine is tongue-in-cheek uh and it but it's gathering of quote experts and what I'm ridiculing, and maybe I could be more explicit about it, but what I'm trying to ridicule is this whole over-reliance on so-called expertise when what really should be cultivated, I think, is critical thinking that can be applied across a variety of different domains. And that's what I tried to do. Like I commented to some extent on COVID stuff, but I tried to do my own reporting on different angles of it and you know, become fluent at least in certain kind of like policy aspects of what was happening. And uh, it's similar to Ukraine. I'm, I'm not going to purport to be an expert on the totality of Ukrainian-American affairs or Ukrainian history or its relations with Russia, et cetera, right? And I'm not holding myself as a, quote, expert, but, you know, at least I'm uh, trying to hold myself as someone who uses rational inquiry to some extent and tries to do journalism on that basis, et cetera. And I think that's a much better sort of prism to um, consume information from than just somebody declaring themselves a quote expert. And then everybody has to just uncritically, uh, you know, uh, valorize whatever their latest pronouncements are. Um, And so for this, so for all of a sudden these COVID people to just um, automatically, uh, focus on Ukraine as though there's some kind of continuum there uh, in, in terms of the issue set is hilarious. You know, I don't want to get into a trans issue rabbit hole at the moment, but I can't help but notice, and I have noticed pretty consistently that there's a, uh, a, a odd continuity between a lot of activists on the trans advocacy stuff and their passion about Ukraine. Like they, they almost view them as two sides of the same coin in terms of the issue uh, issue uh, domain, which is weird and doesn't really get ex- explicated, uh, except that it's a reflection of how their different, I don't know, passions essentially end up coalescing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there is there is that happening, um, and uh, you know, uh, on the one hand, you wonder how much of it is fully organic. I think a lot of it is. Uh, how much of it is kind of 
by design in terms of the, the, the passion being actively cultivated by vested interest, I think the media does play a big role in it. You know, I just watched, you know, a, a, the pro- five billionth Zelensky interview uh, that he did yesterday on 60 Minutes. And, you know, he's he's basically being – and this is maybe for aimed at people who aren't as active on social media, right, or maybe uh, just on Facebook or whatever. But he really – he's being uh, framed as the, mo- the most historic, heroic figure of the modern era. Um, so for somebody who doesn't follow the ins and outs of the news that closely – and I think they're being a responsible citizen just by you know settling in to watch 60 Minutes on a Sunday evening. You know, you can't really blame them for having this you know invigoration of uh, intensity of feeling around this, the cause of Ukraine, given the way that it's presented by by, by sources that they otherwise trust as as reputable. And you know, I'm not even trying to tear down Zelensky so much. It's sort of not even relevant. I'm just. Continuously amazed by this uh, nonstop effort to to tout him as this uh, paragon of of virtue, um, in the same CNN, uh, not CNN. I mean, although it might as well have been CNN, in the same sixty minutes segment. You know, what does he do? Naturally, he re- he reiterates his demand to quote unquote close the sky, and you know, in the same breath, Scott Pelley will intone in his narration on sixty minutes that he's. A legend. I mean, that's what he actually used the word "legend" to describe Zelensky. Um, so, I mean, so it's, it's, a, it's a whole cacophony of different factors, I think, um, that are have bred this level of this level of fervency around the issue. And you know, I think one of the one way one way to sort of decipher it is to try to try to isolate the different ideological currents. That are undergirding it, and that's why what I try to do with this, you know, this piece of the Republicans that I was talking about earlier, and I'm going to be doing it again with the you know left leftist activists who are on the same page. Um, so yeah, I mean, that 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 that's the contribution that I can at least try try to make. Well, it's greatly appreciated, and what's what's ironic, especially about these the COVID people that I'm specifically referring to. The, the reason that my friends suggested, again, my better informed friend suggested, you know, follow these people. They're they're putting out good information, is because they were basically against the standard government line. They were they were saying no, the CDC doesn't have this right. Fauci is wrong. Uh, you know, these are these are the preventive the measures you need to take because you know we're epidemiologists, we're virologists, we're we're this, we're that. So they were opposed to to kind of the standard line. And then when Ukraine pops up, it's like, hello, if you're old enough to be an MD and very well informed in your in your views, you're obviously old enough to remember the Iraq war. And now all of a sudden you're believing everything the media and the government are telling you about this thing in Ukraine. It's just it's just interesting. It really is. But uh, yeah, so you know, what, on, on, on the one them. hand, I. On the one hand, I, I I try to resist encouraging just flat out nihilism. Like I, I don't the the remedy, and I'm not saying you're advocating nihilism at all, Rita. No, uh, but, but, but but something you'll often hear is like, oh, uh, like if I if I even reference something the the New York Times reports, right? One of the replies I'll often get is, "You believe the New York Times?" And I'll say in response, "Well, I mean, you have to be a sophisticated." sort of consumer of what the New York Times is publishing. Um, and you have to look at it with the, through a critical lens. But I think it's also stupid to just discount out of hand anything that the New York Times publishes that's somehow like uh, intrinsically false. And that's not, that's not accurate either. Um, and uh, so you know, I, I, I almost don't want to urge people to just descend into total nihilism where just because, you know, the there's a media consensus around COVID or a media consensus around Ukraine. That automatically means that by virtue of that consensus, you should therefore take the opposite view. I mean, that is kind of, in a way, contrarianism, right? But I do think that there is a um, a more informed and skeptical and kind of rational perspective that, people, that can be encouraged for people to cultivate that will lead them to a conclusion that often does <laughs> result in – uh, poking holes into whatever the predominant narrative is. Um, so I think there's a balance to be struck there, and maybe that's not kind of central to the point you're making, but I think it's worth just adding. 
yeah, it's it's a tough balancing act always, and I appreciate your efforts in this general direction. Yep. Very much. All right. Thanks, Rena. All right, uh, Greg, you're up, and we have other people on this on the stage. I just want to uh, mention that I do have to go at around sixty minutes, um, so got another five minutes or so. But you know, I'll, I'll do this again in a couple of days, so you can feel free to obviously join again. All right, all right. Um, well, I just want to respond also to the last person, just because it's kind of fresh in my mind. Um, you know, Ukraine and Russia—they have a long history and especially Ukraine was never an independent state, uh, at least in the past. It it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and that part of Ukraine or that part of Ukrainian society was actually given a lot more freedom within the Austro-Hungarian Empire versus the side of Ukraine or modern day Ukraine that was in Russia, where uh, Russia was used as an or Russian was used as an administrative language. And uh, generally the upper class who would be they wouldn't generally be ethnically Russian, but they would be Russified Poles or Russians uh, would kind of control the lower class Ukraine or what they would consider Ukrainians. And Ukrainians were often, you know, not looked at as cultured and their language was considered kind of undeveloped because Russian developed over the uh, over um, that period and got a lot of words from other parts of the world. Well, Ukrainian, I mean, this is what what said about it didn't. And it also had a lot more Latin in it from what I know. But uh, so there's just a long history of that stuff. And it's you can all look it up on YouTube and it's very interesting and it gives you a more balanced perspective, I think. But I'll yeah, I kind of wish I was more interested in, in linguistics. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. It just kind of kind of goes over my head. I was just wondering. Sometimes I, I, I pretend don't... to be interested to sound to seem smart. Yeah, well, it's it. You can you can just there's easy YouTube videos. There's like a good uh, video called "The Real History of Ukrainian Actually, Independence." Actually, to, to be in fairness, I'm sort of fibbing somewhat because when I was in Montreal uh, last fall, I did go on a little bit of a YouTube wormhole where I tried to understand the difference between French as spoken in France and French as spoken in Quebec, and there's some you know moderate, moderately interesting details around that, but. Yeah, I was um, also wondering what you thought. Do, do you know about the drone that flew from Ukraine and hit Zagreb? Do you know about that? Um, I, you, you, are you talking about the one that hit Cro- in, in Croatia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Zagreb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I did. That was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that was not. <laughs> that's that that struck me as a potentially significant. Event. Do you, do you, do you and, know what kind of um, drone it was? I don't know. Do you know? Or is there, is there further information on it? Okay. Yeah, there's a good YouTube video on it. I watched because I, I heard about it and I just assumed, oh, it was just a little drone that flew over Croatia. No, it turns out it's the Soviet era. Well, they initially – they, well, they, didn't they initially claim or at least NATO did uh, or maybe it was the Croatian authorities. I, I, I forget exactly but – Somebody who would have been in a position to know about the nature of that drone that entered into Croatian airspace claimed that it was a kind of a minor surveillance type drone, but it turned to be mm-hmm. fully armed, right? It turned mm-hmm. out to be fully mm-hmm. armed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it had bombs on board and it was the Soviet era rocket powered drone. It looks crazy. I've never seen anything like it. I didn't even know they had it. And they're the only country or Ukraine's the only country that operates them still because Russia has put them out of service, at least officially. And to me, it just seems very odd. I mean, some people that I was talking to said, oh, they didn't want to shoot it down over NATO airspace because that would have created a, a bigger mess. But I don't know. It just seemed like a very odd incident. Like, of course, there could have been an accident, like it, it was jammed or something or it was an old technical issue with like the thing. But it was a very, very strange incident, and I'm. <laughs> well, I've seen reports that Russia has actually gone somewhat deep into its inventory and used older equipment for various functions. So it's possible that yeah. I, I, it was a Russian drone, but it's it's hard to say. Obviously, you would need an independent investigation, no, I, and I'm I, not I, inclined I'm to really sure. trust the independence or objectivity of anybody <laughs> well, conducting sure any the of Croatian. these so-called investigations at the moment. Yeah, but I think the Croatians said it came from Ukraine. Like they've already conducted their investigation, and they were meaning like, it came from the Ukraine Armed Forces. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I gotta look. I gotta look into that. I, I can send you a video about it. It's pretty interesting. Okay. Yeah. 
All right. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I'll, yeah thanks, Rick. I'll look into that. Uh, Masha, sorry, I do have to go now, but uh, always interested to hear what you have to say. Not trying to, uh, to uh, disrespect you at all. Just got to end the room now. And I'm going to do it again within the next couple of days. So uh, check back in. All right, everybody. Um, thanks, as always, for joining. And uh, take a look at that Substack if you're so inclined. And uh, take care. Bye-bye.